Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one. So then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. Oh, it smells really It's up to you. You can have it now or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? Okay. So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you to give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> that's as good as it gets right there. That's, uh, that's me and New Year's resolutions. Any of you with me on that one? Yeah. <laughs>
My name's Jared, one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to get to uh, give the talk today and to invite you into God's Word. And let's see what we can discover about what he might be saying for each of us on this first Sunday of this new year. In fact, in a couple of minutes, we're going to be uh, opening God's Word to Philippians chapter 2, if you care to turn there in your Bibles or devices or see it on the screen. But let's just talk for a minute about resolutions. And would it be all right if we just declared this a resolution-free zone today? Just got to take a deep breath here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know how resolutions work or don't. In fact, uh, this year, uh, half of Americans uh, have already made New Year's resolutions. Yes. Uh, that tells us that uh, 88% of them are going to be very disappointed people. That's about 156 million people that are going to fail in their resolution. So if you've joined that team, I just have some bad news to start with you today. In fact, uh, 80% of people that make resolutions uh, on the 1st of January by Valentine's Day can't even remember what they were, let alone having fulfilled them. It's just kind of the nature of the deal. Uh, nutrition experts tell us that two-thirds of us that do lose some weight manage to gain it back before the end of the year. People who have uh, coronary bypass surgery tend to, within two years, have regressed back to all of the old behaviors that helped them get into that condition to start with. We are just not very good about this change thing. Have any of you noticed that with me? Some of my resolutions would have come right out of yellow paper, not because I wrote them on yellow, but that they're, the paper's that old. You know how it goes. Well, the Apostle Paul, I think, knew some things about self-control and about resolutions, and because I love you and care for you, I really desperately want to see you in this year make significant and substantial change to be transformed as a result of your walking with Jesus Christ this year. So let's discover what Paul knew about resolutions. He writes to his friends at Philippi, and he tells them, first of all, that he has one overarching purpose in life. I hope that you have done some life assessment and have your purpose statement. His was very clear. He said, my purpose is to know Christ, to live life with Jesus in a way that experientially he was getting to know God's son, Jesus Christ, better and better. That's the overarching umbrella purpose of his life. And then he says, the way I live life in pursuit of that purpose is that I do one big thing at a time. This is what we read in uh, Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to start from verse 12. It says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This, would you say it with me? This one thing I do. Again, this 
One thing I do. Paul understood something about how God has designed us. So let's first make a couple of observations, then we're going to make a couple of explications. We're going to talk about some practical steps of wisdom, and then we're going to discover together what the Holy Spirit is saying to you about God's next step for you. First of all, we notice that Paul's overarching purpose is to know Christ. And that sounds like an appropriate thing for an apostle to say, don't you? I mean, what else is he going to say, right? You can't have multiple choice on that one. That's the right answer. But it's important for us to understand kind of the nuance of what he's saying. There's a variety of ways for us to know. In the English language, unfortunately, we have one word for two big ideas The Greeks didn't have that problem, and Paul is using a very purposeful word here. It's gnosis, the Greek word, and it means to know by experience. We would call that street smarts, as opposed to book learning, which would be academic learning. Now, Paul was all about book smarts. I mean, he had a functional equivalent of a PhD. He had gone to the best university. He had the best academic and religious mentors. He has the valedictorian of his class. He had excelled in everything that he had done religiously and professionally. He was one smart guy. He would have been recruited by Intel right out of the PhD program. He's smart like some of you are. He was a smart book learning guy, and he did not disparage that. In fact, I hope this year you're going to be more book smart at the end of the year than you were when you started. I hope you join me in a venture of reading through the Bible. I hope you're a part of Bible study groups. I hope that you talk with your friends. I hope that you use other resources. I hope that you get to know this book. But the Apostle Paul was an expert in Scripture and was far from God. Is that an amazing thing? Until he came into a relationship with Jesus Christ and God's spirit, the Holy Spirit came and lived within him. And Paul said at that point, I'll use the book to introduce me to the person. But the overarching goal of my life is to do life with Jesus and experience him. This word gnosis for know uh, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is primarily written in Hebrew to talk about sexual relations between a husband and wife. In fact, some of you are familiar with a very early passage in Genesis chapter four, verse one. It says, Adam knew Eve, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son named Seth. Uh, More modern translations will say, Adam and Eve made love. It's the word there translated later, gnosis. It's to know in an intimate way. It's the word that was used to describe how families get to know each other. Husbands and wives, you live life together. Boy, do you get to know each other, the good and the bad and the ugly or what? Yeah. And kids are born into this thing and your kids grow up and do kids know their parents like what? In fact, on the way to church, some of you have said to your kids, please don't tell anybody what happened in our house before we came to church today. You know what I mean? We really, really know each other. And that's the word that Paul uses for the purpose of his life. I want to do life with Jesus, and I want to know him better. I want to experience his life in me. Street smarts, not just book smarts. The second observation is this. To fulfill that purpose, Paul was very strategic in his approach. He said, this one thing I do. And Paul was not specific in this passage in describing the particular 
point of growth he was pursuing. He gives us general categories that are true for all of us. One category is, I'm going to forget what's behind. My past, he would say to you, your past is not a predictor of your future. You are not on a trajectory from the past to your future. Forget your past. I know you've failed in the past. I know you've succeeded in the past. Your future is not just an extension of that. That's true for all of us. He says, I am not bound to my present. The things that I have now, I hold loosely. He says, this one thing I do, I press, I strain, I move toward the mark and the goal of what Jesus is calling me toward. He leaves it general for us because he wants it to be applied. But trust me, if people in the first century asked Paul specifically, what are you working on with your goal? He would have been able to tell us just like that. The question for you today is what's God's next best step for you? What is it that he is calling a growth tip in your life on the end of that twig that's going to blossom and bloom and flower and be fruitful? The question you're asking today as we wait on him this morning is, God, what next step are you calling me to? Apparently, the uh, Apostle Paul understood some things about how God has made our brains. Let's think about that just a little bit. God, when he designed us, he did a remarkable job, didn't he? I mean, really, even the people that you're sitting next to, he did a remarkable job on. I mean, trust me on that. When he designed our brains, he, he made it, Uh, so that if we were to stick to our goals, that we would need uh, some plans and some willpower to do that. And right in the very front of our brains, that red area there, which is roughly the prefrontal cortex, that's the part of our brain that we actually are aware of and conscious. It's where we make decisions. And that part of our brain is very, very busy. Sometimes it's called the executive center. It's the part of the brain when you want to eat the marshmallow, You're just focused and you're saying, your brain is saying, don't do that, don't do it. Two are coming, two are coming. If you wait, don't do that, wait. That's very conscious, right? The rest of the brain is pretty much to us unconscious. Now, it's pretty important. We're told that 99% or more of the decisions that you make today and act on will be unconscious decisions. Kind of scary, isn't it? But it's a great gift. In fact, if we didn't create habits in this part of our brain where there's little happy electrical charges going around and there's little neurons that are connecting and there's little chemicals that are finding each other and those little chemicals are hopping around and are making us happy and there's hormones that are being developed and secreted. If that wasn't all happening unconsciously, we had to give conscious effort to it, you would be exhausted 30 minutes after you got out of bed each morning. And I know some of you are saying, I am exhausted 30 minutes after I get out of bed each morning. It would be worse, trust me on that, yeah. But what happens is that when we create a new goal, we have to give conscious attention to that, and it goes right into the prefrontal cortex, which is already a pretty pretty busy place. It's where our short-term memory is. It's where we're trying to make good decisions. It's where we're trying to integrate and process life. It's where we're trying to be our better selves moving forward. It is a busy place. And when we create a new goal, it taxes and already overtaxed part of your brain. And that's why enormous uh, energy is required. So we start the year, we have 100 changes we'd like to make, right? And because we are very thoughtful and prudent, we narrow that all the way down to the 10 top things I'm going to change this year. Guaranteed, you will accomplish none of them. And before I get to the good news, is it okay if I make the bad news worse? 
you will also find yourself regressing in areas that you thought you had some control over before. Yeah. A couple of studies. They're kind of fun. Students are easy to do studies on because they're available and they're cheap to buy their time. So it's usually with students, right? So these college students, they were brought together. There was a group of them. They were divided into two separate groups. And the first group it's this group over here, very smart people, were asked to remember a two-digit number. So your number over here, group, is 57. Say it with me, 57. You remember that group, okay, what is it? 57, there we go. And this group over here, equally smart and brilliant people, maybe even smarter, you get a seven-digit number. Are you ready? 8180915. 8180915. Your number is? 57, and your number is 8180955. You can remember that. You are very smart people. That is not a problem. That's just part of a phone number right there. There it is. And so these two groups of people or students were just, just remember your number. That's all you have to do, remember your number. So everybody sits there and they remember the number. And then they're said, in our study, we need to go down the hall and we need to go into another room for the last part of the study. Well, they didn't know that the real study was happening in the hall because on the way down, there were some nice hosts that were there and they were offering either a slice of delicious warm chocolate cake or a bowl of fruit. Now, here's the deal. Those of us that were remembering the seven-digit number were two times more likely to take the chocolate cake. <laughs> That's what happens to us. Yeah. When we tax this part of our brain, this is how God made us, when we tax this part of our brain, it takes energy and the rest of our brain says, we think we're gonna have chocolate cake after all on this thing. That's where that goes. Paul says, this one thing I do. This prefrontal cortex is like a muscle and it can be trained and it can be developed, but it does not develop overnight. So I start New Year's resolution. I'm only gonna do three things this year. I'm gonna go work out at the gym. I'm gonna stop smoking and I'm gonna lose weight. That's all I'm gonna do, just three things. And that's like putting a 300 pound barbell in my hands and it drops on my chest and it breaks some ribs. And I wonder why I have failed so much. Because you simply have not been designed by God to tax yourself that way. Paul said this, Holy Spirit revelation, this one thing I do, he says. Hmm, interesting. So what's God's priority for you? Well, I mentioned students, and by the way, you not only buy their time cheap, but you also feed them stuff. So another group of students that were brought in, <clears throat> they were divided into, into half. One group was brought into a room, and immediately they smelled it. It was delicious, in that room, we're baking fresh chocolate chip cookies. In fact, there was a big plate of them right up front. It was absolutely gorgeous. You could still see the melting chocolate chips. Are you with me on that mouth squirting? Mm -hmm. Next to it was a luscious bowl of radishes. Uh-huh. First group of students, uh, you're welcome to eat as many radishes as you want, but you cannot have the cookies. And they sit there and they wait and then they were given a little test to do. The second group of students were brought in and they said, eat whatever you want. Go ahead and have some snacks. You're gonna be taking a little bit of a test. Here's the result at the end. The test was a puzzle, which the study participants didn't know, but it was impossible to do. So they were testing the stick to -itiveness. Guess what? Those who couldn't eat the cookies gave up after eight minutes. Those who could eat cookies if they wanted to, whether or they ate them or not, gave up after 20 minutes. In other words, just avoiding the marshmallow in front of you will reduce your stick to by two and a half times. That's how God designed the brain to work. 
This is what the Apostle Paul says. I know what my life is about. It's getting to know Jesus. And let me tell you how I'm going to get there. This one thing I do, this next thing that he is calling me heavenward toward, I haven't reached that next thing yet, but he reached that thing for me. And I'm going to take that next thing that he has put in front of me. Let's learn from Jesus how he thinks about discipline. Discipline with the related word that we call discipleship. What do disciples do? A disciple is someone who has disciplined herself to follow the rule, the example, the leadership, the instruction of another person. My friend Joe is in the army. Got to see him over Christmas. That was a lot of fun. Bob and Lori and Joe has disciplined himself. He's become a disciple of the U.S. military. And as far as I know, things work better for Joe when he salutes. I've never been in the military, but Kevin, I understand that it generally works better when you understand the orders and then you obey them. That's kind of how that thing works. That's what being a disciple is. When Jesus first called the early disciples, it says that he said to them, come and say the word with me, follow me. A disciple is a follower. Paul says, I'm a follower of Christ. I want to follow Jesus around and get to know him better. Jesus tells us this about what disciples do. Now, check it out later in your Bibles. You'll find these two stories in Luke chapter 14. They're both just delicious, and probably for most of you, they already will be familiar. But think with me. Two stories, one point. The first story is about a guy that's going to build a large commercial building. And so he builds away, and he doesn't have enough money to get done, and so this high-rise ends up not being completed. Tower back in that day. And Jesus said, you know, if you're going to build a tower, wouldn't it be smart to make a plan and to do a budget associated to that and to see if you have the resources to be able to get the job done Because if you get a half tower built, people are just going to ridicule you. Have you noticed that? That people tend to ridicule failures more than they celebrate successes. Yeah, just kind of how we're wired. In fact, I'm doing that right now. Can I tell you a story about that? Of course, you'd love for me to hear that. Okay, here we go. For the last five years, I've been reading uh, articles about a building in downtown Portland. It's right across the street from Nordstrom's. Uh, That becomes important in the story, by the way. And the hole was dug down into the ground, and they got the first tenants. The largest law firm in Portland was going to move into the upper stories, and they were all excited about it, a brand-new high-rise building. And then things went south, the economy, and the tenants decided to back out for a period of time, and the construction on the building stopped. But not after the hole was in the ground, and one of those being turly-whirly cranes, was put up. You know what those are like? They go up the the Intel deals over here. Yeah. Well, the construction stopped, but when it stopped, they didn't bother to tether the crane down. So when the wind blew, it kind of went around like a whirlybird thing. And that did bother the shoppers in Nordstrom, knowing that overhead there was all all these tons of metal whirling around. So eventually they had, why, why do I know all this stuff? Because for the last five years, this has been the story. Now, Thousands of buildings have been built in the greater Portland metro area in the past five years, but we did not read about them. We've been reading about the one that failed. That's what Jesus is saying. You count the cost before you move forward. Second story, there's a king. He's minding his own business. He has 10,000 troops. He hears that from a long way off, another king is coming to declare war with 20,000 troops. He says the king wouldn't just send his 10,000 and go start the war. No, you count the cost. You figure out strategically. You don't want to go into a war that you can't win. 
And if he decides he can't win this war, he's going to send a delegation of people a long ways away. If the three of them get killed, at least it's the three of them and not the 10,000 of us. You're going to send a delegation. You're trying to to negotiate peace. You count the cost. That's the point of the story. Jesus says this. So, therefore, in the same way, if you want to be my disciple, then I want you to count the cost, and I want you to give up everything to do that. Now, what's he talking about? Selling everything, giving everything away, and becoming homeless? That ends up kind of being a burden on society, and I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd want to sleep outside tonight, really. What Jesus is saying is precisely what the Apostle Paul says in the text that we read moments ago in a little different verbiage. Jesus is saying this, I want you to leave your past behind. I mean, I want you to leave everything. This is the cost of following me. I want you to leave everything behind. You've got to leave your past behind. You've got to leave that behind. Paul says, I have decided that the accomplishments and the failures of my life are going in the same pile of dung. I'm just going to decide to divest myself of that. And the present things, the Apostle Paul says to us, my life is not determined by what I have and hold and prefer in the present. My life, the one thing I do is I am giving myself to the next thing that God is calling me to. What's a calling? That's kind of a common word that's used in spiritual language and gets confusing, doesn't it? Sometimes I'm confused about the calling thing. Let's go back to what the word means. Let's imagine that, uh, Dan, that you and I are um, hiking up in the woods. And you've been there and I haven't been there. You're like the guide. And uh, because uh, I'm way older than you and not nearly as good a shape as you, I am behind 10 yards. And you come up to a fork in the road and you say, hey, let's go on the left side. Let's go on the trail on the left. And I'm 10 yards back and I'm going, I don't know if I really want to do that. I think maybe I'd rather go on the right. I'm going to think this over for a while. And every time we have a fork in the trail, every time I'm trying to figure out whether or not I'm going to follow your lead. Now that's not being a disciple. Jesus says this, if you want to follow me, count the cost and decide you're going to put it all away and you're just going to trust me to lead you. And so I'm following Dan, and he gets up there, and he's taking the trail to the left, and he calls me. He says, hey, Jared, come on, this way, this way. That's a calling. Come this way. This one thing I do, I press, I strain toward the goal to which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. At this fork in your life, what is he calling you to do in taking the next step forward? That's discipleship. And that is the nature of your everlasting relationship with Jesus Christ. When you die and others come and they celebrate your life in a memorial service, you will be long gone by then. You're going to be physically present with the Lord, and you're going to, to your surprise, discover that not all that much has changed. You're probably better looking, but not all that much has changed. The body's going to be a lot better, but not all that much has changed because the nature of a relationship with Jesus Christ is that we will always be called forward. Hey, come follow me. And the apostle Paul says, that's how 
You can live life right now. Disciples make plans and they follow in their discipleship. So I promised there were three things. We've done the first two. I know you're trying to figure out what were they. Let's not even go back and review. Let's go to the third one, okay? Some wisdom that many people have discovered and affirmed and is probably the way you live life. Five very practical steps and then we're going to take a few moments of reflection and ask God, what is it that you're calling me to? We've discovered this about people who successfully make changes. The first thing they do is that they set one positive goal. All three of those are very important words. They set, they decide on it. One, it's singular. It's not three. It's not five. It's not 10. They set one positive goal. Why does it need to be positive? In other words, I need to state what I aspire toward rather than what I want to avoid. A negative goal was don't eat that marshmallow. Did you notice how much attention was attracted to marshmallows when the goal was a negative goal? I think so, yeah. You know how it works. Maybe some of you have fasted or tried to fast as I have. Now, I can get really busy in stuff that I love for an entire day and forget to eat. That can happen. It's not healthy. I don't make it a habit, but I've had that experience. You probably have as well. But if I decide the night before I'm going to fast the next day, I wake up with a raging appetite for breakfast like I never have before. The goal is don't eat. And all of my attention is attracted to what I'm not doing. By the time I get to lunch, I'm delirious. By the time I get to dinner, I am not fit for human consumption. I just need to go in a closet someplace and be locked in like I'm dying or something. It's the nature of how we're wired when we focus on the negative. We are absolutely drawn into that set one positive goal. What's the thing that you're called toward. You only have a single supply of willpower. It's most effective to focus on one thing. If you try several big changes simultaneously, you're guaranteed to be undermined in your efforts. A very respected and elite general was asked last year, the secret to her success. And she said, and I quote, well, I list my priorities, numbering them one, two, three, and so on, and then I cross off all of them to and following. <laughs> the Apostle Paul got this good idea by revelation 2,000 years before she did. This one thing I do. Now here's the miracle that happens for people that pursue one big thing. What they discover is that other areas of their life tend to come into order when the one big thing comes into order. The precise opposite of 180 degrees of those who try to focus on 10 things and not only fail in the 10, but often regress in some of the things that they thought had come into order in their life. This one thing I do. The second thing that wise people who change do is they write it down and they tell others. <laughs> this is pretty amazing. When you write down a goal, <clears throat> That all by itself substantially increases the likelihood of success. We don't know why, but it is consistently collaborated. Writing it down substantially increases the likelihood of success. Now, here's the little, uh, I was gonna say icing on the cake, but I don't know. Yeah, I, say, I like icing. Here's the icing on the cake. This is the freebie. 
The act of writing it down also makes you happier. Now, we do know the physiology on that. It's just a crazy thing. We end up feeling better when we have made a plan, we've committed ourselves to it, and we actually write it down. There's actually little happy stuff in your brain that gets excited and does some junking jacks and makes you happy as a result of that. You make a plan, you write it down, and then you tell others. Now, it's helpful for us because we're designed to live in community. We are at our best when we do life together. That's why here at Evergreen, we group up 45 or more Sundays a year. Just put that on your calendar now. We regular group. Just put it on your calendar now. We group together because we are far better together than by ourselves. One of the reasons is if you tell supportive friends or family members about what you're working on, they can provide a significant context of support for you. In fact, we make our biggest changes in a supportive environment. Now, did you notice that I qualified friends and family around the word supportive? Because <laughs> yeah. some of you have friends and family who are not and uh, really don't want you to change because their dysfunction works very well with yours, and so they'd like to sabotage your efforts. So we joke about it, but we've all had those stories, haven't we? So find somebody else that will be supportive. Get someone a, a coach and get some a friend that just says, hey, will you help me with this thing? We are far better when we move together. And then I encourage you to publish your ambitions and your progress. I mean, put it out there. If you're a Facebook person, you know, if you're planning to, to make a goal and take some incremental progress for it, post your successes and your failures. It's amazing what happens when we know that our successes and failures are gonna be shared with the world. Any cheating that I do is gonna be publicized. It's amazing how that helps us move forward. Should we take a look at the third thing they've discovered? To make the goals smart. Many of you are familiar with this acronym. It's very powerful. I use it, I use it every, every year. SMART goals are specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-specific or time-bounded. Smart goal. So let's imagine you or one of your friends says, you know, this year, and let's imagine that it's a couple. Let's imagine that they say, our big deal, what we really feel that God is calling us to do this year is to get a handle on our financial stewardship. So our goal, here it is, is by the end of December 31st of 2014, we are going to pay off all of our consumer debt and we're going to save $10,000 for an emergency fund. Does that sound like a good goal? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So let's do a little test. Is it specific? I think so, yeah. Is it measurable? Absolutely, you can measure it with, uh, with accounts and I can measure it on the calendar. Let's jump to the last one. Is it time specific? Absolutely, I can look at the calendar. I have 361 more days to work on that one or something like that. Yeah. Let's check about the two middle because goals often fail at the two in the middle. The first one, is it achievable? Well, so we do a little interview. Well, tell me about your finances. Well, on the consumer debt thing, you know, we went a little crazy for Christmas and we had some other stuff. There's $8,000 in credit card stuff. Okay, so there's 8,000. Uh, do you have any car payments? Yeah, a couple of car payments and, uh, you know, at, and that's a total of 12,000. So we have 8,000 and 12,000. So we're $20,000 in consumer debt. Okay, we wanna pay that off. And then we wanna save $10,000. Do the math, you're smart. How many is that now? 20 and 10 equals $30,000, okay? So how much is your take-home family income? Well, it's $40,000. So don't answer. I'm not trying to trick you here, but here's the deal. Is, is it achievable? And the answer is absolutely yes. It is achievable. You can bring home $40,000 and you can do a $30,000 swing. You can do that. 
But when we get to, is it realistic? Probably not so much. <laughs> yeah, there's dastardly stuff like food and gas and rent and clothes and those kinds of things. It probably isn't reasonable. If we don't have a goal that makes sense as a smart goal, not only will we fail, but it's just more discouraging the next time around. But it might even be discouraging to say, oh man, I had such great aspirations, but it doesn't look like I can do it. What can I do about it? Here's a little helpful hint from an old guy that's been around this a few times. The hint is move it from a quantitative goal to a process goal. Like this. You know, we don't really know what's realistic. We know how much debt we have and we know how much we'd like to save, but we don't know what's realistic to do in a year. But a process goal could be by the end of this year, we're going to sign up for Financial Peace University. Happens to start here at Evergreen on the 1st of February on Thursday nights. We are going to go to all nine weeks. We are going to do our homework every week. We are going to fully and candidly participate in our group conversation. At the end of the nine weeks, we're going to link up with at least two other people in FPU, and we're going to have weekly accountability to one another. We're going to leave FPU with a plan for the rest of the year, and we're going to work that plan monthly until the end of December, and we're going to tell you where that process got us to. Is that a smart goal? Absolutely. It's a process goal instead of a quantitative goal that may help. That's what successful people have learned to do. And number four, I mentioned there were five of them. Number four is this, measure and track. It's phenomenal. Just measuring something increases the likelihood of doing it. Now, many of you have already been introduced to my Fitbit scale, right? <clears throat> you know that Ann got me a scale to measure my weight on my birthday. You've heard the story about that. Uh, we would both recommend to all of you that you not give your loved one a scale <laughs> unless he or she asks for it. And only really odd and demented people would ever ask for that, I understand. My Fitbit scale and I, we have a love-hate relationship. Uh, when I'm losing weight, uh, it's lovely. And then, uh, I don't know what happened, but I sure enjoyed the holidays. And uh, I got on that thing this morning. And you know what the deal is, that the scale talks to me. You also know that it shares with my Fitbit partners exactly what my weight is. It's an amazing form of accountability. So I got on the scales this morning. I wasn't very happy about it. And I didn't really want my friends to know what it was because I've been misbehaving. And I got on the scales, but the scale was even mean to me today. I got on, and usually it says, hello, Jared, which is kind of a cool thing. Isn't it nice to have a personal first name basis with your, hello, Jared, and then I'm looking, and it says scanning, 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 scanning. It can't even find how much I, scanning, scan. Then it says, get off. Get, get off. Watching over here, scanning, scanning, stay off, stay off, scan. It finally gives me my weight, publishes it to the whole world, right? Man, this is tough. This is how I started my first Sunday of the new year. Yeah. I rushed down here. I was here before 7 o'clock this morning just to be with people that were friendly and nice to me. Yeah. Here's the deal. When you publicize to others, it has an amazing influence on our behavior. It's powerful. So I found a new thing. I, I'm almost done with this, okay? Really, I'm almost done. But Rick, this is so much fun. I just have to share it, okay? I found a new little online thing. It is way fun. Here you go. It's, uh, uh, by the way, I don't get a commission, and it doesn't even cost anything. It's just way fun. It's stick.com, S-T-I-C-K-K. Two Ks, stick.com. Here's the deal. <clears throat> you go on, you log on, and you give your goal, whatever it is. 
And then you choose the period of time that you're going to commit to the goal. So I chose 12 weeks. And then you choose what day you're going to log on and report whether you were successful or whether you failed. Okay, so I chose Friday. And last Friday, I got a little note from the stick.com people, and it said, so did you succeed or fail? Now, that's all fine, right? That's just reporting to yourself. What's the big deal? The big deal is this. There's a financial incentive for your good behavior. You give them your visa information. Oh, let's see. Dave Ramsey wouldn't do that. Uh, Let's see. Maybe debit cards. I don't know. So you give them the information, and then you decide who's going to get money if you fail. Oh, baby. So they give you a variety of uh, organizations to pick one that you don't like. So if you are a committed Democrat, you can pick the Republican Central Committee. Or if you're a Republican, you can give it to the Democrats. Or they give you a whole variety of emotion-evoking foes if you want. Talk about increasing the incentive, right? Because if you don't report, your Visa card gets dinged. There's no way out of this thing for 12, for 12 weeks, yeah. Or you can choose a friend or foe. So there might be somebody that you don't really don't like, and like, there is no way, Chuck, I would like for you to get money from me. And so, no, 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 no. So Chuck, I chose Nick Van Loof, the friend, the friend. He was, he was my trainer a while back. I owe him. So if I fail on a weekly basis, Nick Van Loo gets six bucks, a buck a day for the week that I have failed. That's how it works. That's just kind of fun. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal with stick.com. This is what makes it fun. People who sign up their goal and report in but don't have an incentive to behave have a 35% success rate. People who sign on and do what I did with Nick, a buck a day or more, 85% success rate. We really like accountability. We are really designed to do this thing in community. We are really better off when we have a coach. We are really more successful when we do life out loud with others. It's why we group up around here. I mentioned that there are five. This is where we're gonna end today. Because all of the people in the world can do number one. They can set a positive goal. They can do the number two, write it down and tell others. They can do number three. They can make it smart. They can do number four. They can mark their progress and that they can share it with others. But only disciples of Jesus can do number five. And this will make you happy. This is the good news in this message. You're not on your own in this deal. Not on your own. It's not just that God's planning to come tap you on the shoulder, pat you on the back, kick you in the fanny, and help you out either. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Christ has already reached and taken hold of stuff from me. And my job is to find out which piece of that he wants for me to grab onto and to realize this year. Oh, this is an amazing story. You're not on your own. He has been the trailblazer, Dan. He has gone down all of the forks in the road of your life. And he has said, I am here for you to be a successful follower. And at each stage, we reach out and we follow him in the next step. What's his next step for you? Would you take a moment with me? Helps me to concentrate with closed eyes. 
In fact, it helps our whole being kind of focus often when we bow our heads. We, we take a, a reverent kind of posture. It really helps us concentrate and focus. The Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. Some of you have been too busy to hear. He's still speaking. It's often a gentle whisper. It's usually heard by us in the form of thoughts. They're thoughts that come with a sense of conviction about that. What's he calling you to? What's the one big thing? Let him speak to you. With your eyes still closed, what does he want you to learn? Where does he want you to grow? How does he want you to face some emotional stuff or addictions or obsessive behavior? Where does he want you to develop physical or financial health? How does he want you to grow in your marriage, or if you're not married, to become marriageable or to live successfully in your singleness? It's not about New Year's resolutions. It's about being a disciple, a follower. What is he calling you to address this year? And you make that your one goal, and you make a plan, and you count the cost and you tell others and you measure your progress. It's called following him. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus.